What if it's a private beach? What if it's really private? Oh, uh, what if we keep driving? Uh, Just don't look in the rear view. <laughs> what, what, what is going on? <laughs> what was that? Shit, that's my, my bad. That came over on, um, <laughs> that was the fucking autoplay uh, advertisement when I was doing my speed test. <laughs> I thought this is a weird bit you're doing that for the intro. <laughs> I thought that Roscoe was doing a bit that he didn't tell me about. <laughs> I, ah, shit. I didn't even realize that was playing through. My bad, dudes. <laughs> okay. That's cool. That's cool. Okay. Um, we judge the rich. We judge the poor. You might say we're the law. Hi, this is Dope Movies and Shows, known in the underground as DMS. I am Nat, and with me every time is Sir Hemingford Gray. How are you, my man? Hello again. And again and again. And today we have a special guest, Roscoe from Exo Americanus. Hi, how you doing, bud? Thanks for coming on. Oh, man, I'm doing, doing very well. I'm excited to be here. Hey, we're excited to have you. So Exodus Americanus, it's kind of a, a podcast a website, and sort of a, a radio network. It's a lot of things to a lot of people. <laughs> and what would you say your podcast is about? Well, we were uh, we were one of the first, uh, you know, far-right, dissident, alt-right podcast. It was the Shoah, Fascination, and then us out of the gate. And early on, you know, we thought we wanted to sort of bridge the gap between what would become the alt-light and the alt-right. And then we realized that was fucking gay and that we lived in an absolute hellish world of pain and suffering. And our goal became to give everybody two hours where they could just relax, where they could laugh, and not have to think about how screwed we are for a little while. Hey, I like that. And uh, although this is a far-left intersectional show, I, I think we can at least tolerate you for a little while, because we are the tolerant left. I appreciate that. <laughs> Well, I appreciate your appreciation. Now, let's get right to it. Today, we're going to talk about what I like to call the gunkata action genre. We're going to talk about uh, three movies. We're going to talk about The Raid. We're going to talk about Dread, the new one, not the old one. Don't worry. And we're going to talk about John Wick, the first one, not the third one. Sorry. Um, so, But let's talk about this, this genre. I think this genre is is really interesting because maybe not everyone thinks of it as a genre it's just like action movies but i think um i think in this round table everyone's old enough to uh kind of uh be able to delineate it from like older action formats do you guys know what i'm saying yeah absolutely yeah yeah this is like meth coke fueled action and in that drug cocktail the meth is represented by gunplay because, you know, it's sort of the, the general feeling of well-being associated with shooting a gun. And, and, and that's what happiness is, right? A warm one. And, uh, and the coke supplied 
by martial arts, that frenetic, kinetic, you know, zip zam zoom of flying limbs. Oh, certainly produces <laughs> high impact, high kinetic violence. Right. And and uh, and pacing. And I think this, you know, it, it's sort of uh, obvious to me that this kind of originated with the Matrix in 1999. But I, I, I think you could say there were hints of it earlier, like in 1992's Hard Boiled or, or actually prefer its original Hong Kong name, Hot Blooded God of Cops. Well, it's kind of. Are you talking about like John Woo's style? Because because that uh, that came. Like, was it was it was Face Off his American movie? That's right, with Nicolas Cage and uh, uh, John Travolta. Absolutely, just amazingly entertaining movie. By the way, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that like since it would like come on TV, like as <laughs> you know, just like <laughs> in in the afternoon on a Saturday. Went through a couple years ago and found like all those movies that they used to like play on TBS when they like remember the groan for Stallone thing that they would do. Right. <laughs> like I went and found a bunch of those movies and like watched the, you know, not edited for the TV format, like Tremors, Face Off, Broken Arrow, such good stuff. Yeah. So you watch like the original uh, theater versions of uh, films that you had only seen on TV before. Fantastic experience. Can't recommend it enough. Yeah, I mean that's that's what BitTorrent is great for—to just like roll through all these movies that maybe you've seen like bits and pieces of on TV, or you've only seen on TV, and uh, uh, you know, just like actually get to know what it's about. I mean, like Tremors is fantastic, but it was just like the crap that came on at like one thirty on a Saturday, like in my mind, until I actually watched it. To be fair though, the have you, have you ever seen like like I don't know whether the TV edit of RoboCop was the same for you guys, but it's absolutely hilarious. You know when they change change the words for the swearing. Yeah, what did you guys get over is it is it ridiculous in RoboCop? Yeah, yeah, because it's like Jim Jim the he's shooting RoboCop and he's going fuck me, fuck me, and it's like and and they changed it for fly to fly me for the TV. <laughs> yeah, I mean that reminds me of the Big Lebowski. Um, <laughs> you remember the part where um, uh, 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 the Vietnam guy—I forget the character's name—played by John Goodman. Um, uh, he starts uh, destroying this car uh, out in front of uh, some person's house, and he he starts uh, screaming, "This is what happens, Larry! This is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass." <laughs> in in the TV version, what he's saying is, "This is what happens when you meet a stranger in the Alps." <laughs> So one of my guilty pleasures is uh, Dragon Ball Z abridged. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's it's absolutely hilarious. And there's a scene oh, where yeah. uh, Vegeta says, well, you can just find me in the Alps. <laughs> I about fell out. <laughs> and that's on YouTube, right? Oh, yeah. The whole thing is. It's much yeah. better than any other iteration of the series. <laughs> Yeah, I normally like try to watch that show, even the um, you know, the official abridged version, which is I think called Dragon Ball Z Kai, um, if I'm not mistaken. And it's like I can watch like 13 episodes or something, and then I just sort of drop off. But uh, let's get back to gun kata action, shall we? Um, so the <laughs> the reason I I call it gun kata action is uh, because of the movie Equilibrium. Which uh, that came out in 2002, stars Christian Bale, and it was sort of um, trying to cash in on the popularity of The Matrix. Um, because you know, I was actually I was actually talking to um, I'm going to get sidetracked again for a second. I was talking to a friend uh, of the show who um, he's he's like 18, and so 
he was he was born after the matrix came out and although he's like seen a lot of uh older films um he he said i watched the matrix it's not that good whatever i had to explain to him like the matrix changed everything about movies like you can just like you know divide movies especially action movies into like before the matrix and after the matrix like if we look at action movies from like the 1980s and whatnot or or like uh in the 1990s like think of true lies right um the matrix changed what you know what what we think of as the action formula well, it's like it's the bullet time stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and the bullet time stuff even made it into Shrek, didn't it? Do you remember? Is it Princess Fiona when she jumps in the air? Right, the bullet time slow motion stuff uh, that was so iconic. Yeah, you can parody it in Shrek. Um, it's like E.T. flying across the moon. It's just one of those iconic things that people can parody, and everyone go like, "Oh, I know that." Ha, you know. So funny story about the Matrix. Uh, it's actually a huge ripoff of the Grant Morrison comic book, The Invisibles. They changed enough of it so they wouldn't get hit for like, you know, copyright infringement or whatever. But the uh, the cross the now uh, transitioned Wachowski brothers actually had copies of the uh, the first trade that they kept on set for the entire filming of the first movie. Somebody asked Morrison like what he thought about it. And he's like, you know, trilogy probably would have been a lot better if they kept that up for the whole thing. Well, I was going to say that that explains why the second two was so bad. They they were obviously riffing with the second two, weren't they? They had nothing to copy. Well, there was plenty of more source material that they had gone to, but they had sort of built their own little world that they could play in as opposed to trying to change the elements of another one. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I I really, really loved The Matrix, and I still really like it a lot. Obviously, the the, the movies that followed it were terrible, but but there was uh, a lot of great um i don't even know what you'd call it let's just call it expanded universe fiction uh, official stuff that was uh released on the website uh after the movie came out the first movie and you know i was such a huge fan i would actually visit the movie's website like when when have you ever done that like every movie has a website how many people actually visit the movie's website but i i did for the matrix and it had a lot of really cool content there's a lot of short stories and stuff that take place within the universe of the matrix and they're really good some of them are really good well that was gathered together for the animatrix wasn't it Matt? uh no no the animatrix is a separate thing that was made in japan this was not made in japan uh these are english short stories uh oh, okay. these are purely pure, pure purely textual uh short stories um, not visual. That's kind of cool that they had enough respect for the uh, consumers of their product that they thought that they would go to the website and, you know, consume more. Yeah, the website actually had had really good content on it, especially if you like the whole idea of the 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 lore of the Matrix, which I totally do. I mean, how cool is it that like, you know, the action hero was not like a muscle bound kind of dude that most of us can never be, but he's sort of, uh, or, uh, I mean, Keanu Reeves is a pretty normal looking guy, all things considered. He's a handsome guy, but he's not like jacked as hell, like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. Like you don't have to, uh, you don't have to work your entire life to build up and maintain a physique like Keanu Reeves. Well, even in, even in, even in John Wick, if we actually try and get this back on the rails, he doesn't, he isn't jacked up or anything, is he? What's so cool about The Matrix and even into John Wick, we see this, there's a certain typecasting that Keanu Reeves has gotten sort of post uh, Bill and Ted of just this normal man clawing and fighting and 
biting his way out of the bowels of hell. <laughs> I mean, quite literally in uh, Bill and Ted, uh, Bill and Ted Two, um, Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Um, but uh, okay, let's let's steer this back onto the road. Equilibrium had uh, gun katas as part of the plot, which is a uh, uh, you know anyone who who out there who took karate classes as a kid knows a kata is a kind of martial arts routine, like a combo in a fighting game. And so gun katas are gun combat techniques which integrate martial arts. So in this action genre, the genre sort of popularized or you know, let's say originated in the Matrix. Um, it's it's heavily inspired uh, by martial arts choreography, which really allowed the pace of the action to be much faster and more complex than in older action movies. So uh, let's uh, let's start by by talk. Let's go in chronological order with these three movies. So uh, how about we start with 2011's The Raid? Yep. So this was made in Indonesia. But I learned uh, from Hemingford that it was written and directed by Gareth Evans, who's Welsh. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's why the production values are so awesome. And, and you know, why I've never heard of an Indonesian movie before or since. <laughs> but the other thing about it, though, is it doesn't follow like, um, like Western movie tropes, does it either? I, I, I guess. I mean, it's uh, it, it kind of does in the sense that... Uh, you know, crooked cops are kind of a staple in every single movie about cops, right? Whenever you're dealing with a mob or something like that, you have you have irresponsible crooked cops who are just gonna, you know, they're they're taking money and they're just screwing people over. And then you have the good cop who's like, I'm gonna do what cops are supposed to do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think one of the things that is so that makes it, you know, a movie that can be consumed by audiences worldwide is the the simplicity of it. When you all told me that, you know, one of the movies that we were going to do was The Raid, I'd never seen it. And uh, Sir Gray had told me that if you like Dread, you're going to love The Raid. So I'm trying to find The Raid, but I can only find The Raid Redemption. And I'm trying to find sub like the uh, the subtitling for it because my hearing is hot garbage. <laughs> Which it turns out that like I didn't really need that because there's only like seven or eight lines of dialogue in the movie. And you could literally watch the movie in its original language and pick up enough from context clues to completely understand the story. Like whether it's, you know, how things are being said, the body language, the situations that the guys land in. Like it's all it's all written in the universal language of violence. Yeah, absolutely. One thing to note, you said you could only find the Raid Redemption. That is actually the first movie. Oh, I know, I know. They couldn't get the copyright claim to release it as the Raid in the United States, so it became the Raid Redemption. Ah, uh, right, okay, because I yeah. know it's the Raid. Because oh, that happens quite a lot, doesn't it? It's like a film's called One Thing in the States and yeah. then another thing over here. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I was wondering why it would have a uh, a subtitle. That explains it. That explains it. Yeah. The raid. Uh, I think the second movie is just called the raid two. But um, don't quote me on that. I've actually never seen the second movie, although I've wanted to. Um, but I, I think the main innovation of the raid was the escalation of pacing that I mentioned before. Uh, you know, it, it's even faster than the Matrix or Equilibrium or, or those earlier films from the two thousands. Um, and the uh, the way they they get away with this is is by making the plot scene so minimal and the action more about choreography than big set pieces, so they could afford to make every scene intense. Um, and it includes a lot of straight up martial arts scenes without any gunplay 
And actually, they're all using uh, specifically an Indonesian form of fighting that looks really cool. Well, it's brutal, isn't it? It's, it's all knees and elbows and when, when they're fighting. It's, there's not a lot of fists there. I got to say, the, the impenetrable blocks that they have in that film, absolutely amazing. You know, like a lot of times when somebody tries to put up their block or their guard, if you're strong enough or you, uh, you know, hit it hard enough, you can just blast right through that thing. I don't think anybody saw, I, I don't think I saw anybody get a guard broken that entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> that, that goes beyond my understanding of martial arts. It just looks cool and it works really well in small closed in environments, I, I, I think. So it, it really suits the, um, kind of, uh, narrow corridors and and crowded claustrophobic spaces of this apartment building um and let's just uh recap like what it's what it's about real quick it shouldn't be difficult so this movie is about basically a SWAT team that needs to go fuck up some criminals in an apartment building and it's hard and that's the plot <laughs> yeah it's uh, how many stories is in is in the raid i can't remember is it is it 20 stories of uh druggies and just general thugs and ne'er-do-wells and that they have to fight through to get up there yeah i mean this is basically the movie version of the um the end of ghostbusters the video game for nes <laughs> that was an absurdly frustrating game <laughs> <laughs> The kids listen to this. They don't know the meaning of Nintendo hard. <laughs> and there wasn't some fucking website where we could just look up how to do this stuff either. If you if you read read out the synopsis for this, you'd, uh, and you said to someone said, "Is this computer game or, or film?" You'd probably prompt for for computer game, like getting through forty levels all the way up to the big boss. Right. No. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is this is really the the film adaptation of the end of Ghostbusters, the video game. It's more of it than actually Ghostbusters, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was inspired by that. Maybe it was inspired by that. I don't know. Um, but I, one thing I wanted to mention was that I looked up a picture of the uh, director just because I couldn't believe that he was Welsh. And, you know, this was just such a revelation to me. He has like over a foot of height on everyone in the movie. Oh, what is there some sort of group photo? Is there? Well, he's. Uh, I saw a photo of him standing with the main actor, so you can kind of gauge the height of everyone else in the film based on you know how tall they are compared to the main actor. Everyone's around the same height, to be honest. And and this guy has like at least thirteen inches on the main actor, so it must have been like filming Little Rascals or something. <laughs> the uh, the main guy Iko Uwas is five foot six. Does that mean he's taller than Tom Cruise? <laughs> Isn't he like five niners? I thought Tom Cruise oh, was five nine. But I don't know. Um, but I, I didn't know this is what Indonesian people looked like. Like before I saw this movie, I had practically no interaction with Indonesia as a as a, an entity. Like I imagined more brown, but they're more like jungle Asians. Although it's completely possible that the people you'd use in a film would like look a certain way. Like it's the same thing in India where a lot of actors look almost like white and it's clear that they find like the whitest people, like the whitest looking people that they can, you know, along with makeup and stuff, but still like, uh, you know, they are very, very light skin and they're wiry quick little buggers, aren't they? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's, um, that, that, that's the great thing about it. They also talk really fast. This is kind of weird. Uh, for the first 20 minutes of the movie, I accidentally had the Spanish audio track on. <laughs> 
I didn't notice it immediately, even though, you know, like most Filipinos, I do know Spanish, but I didn't notice that they were speaking Spanish because I was watching on 2x speed. So, and then, then this was a trip, man. You want to talk about like a meth cocaine cocktail, watch the raid on 2x speed. But uh, <laughs> eventually, like I, I recognized more and more Spanish words. So I, I changed it to the native Indonesian. And I was surprised that it's like a way faster language than even Spanish, which I already thought was fast. Their speech sounded just like the machine gun fire. It was hilarious. <laughs> but... um. <laughs> uh, one other thing that I noticed is that the old guy, you know, like the senior officer or something. The whitest guy in the movie? Yeah, The yeah. whitest guy in the movie, <laughs> yeah. Very weird. Um, but but he heavily reminded me of someone, and I think it might be Michael Ironside, who you might re- you might remember him as the senior officer in Starship Troopers. Yeah, I, I know Michael Ironside, and Scanners yeah. is the one I know him for best. But he definitely looked like some, you know, western actor that i'm uh i i couldn't really put my finger on it but i felt like it was him but that yeah i can't there's an actor that has been on like he's been a bad guy on shows like burn notice and like all these different cop dramas that looks exactly like that corrupt white cop in the raid why is he like okay eponymous uh evil white guy a guy who just perfectly fills the archetype of corrupt cop I mean, if if you got to do it, man. <laughs> yeah, that's the um that, that that's the thing. Like, I kept seeing someone else when I saw him, but uh, I don't know. There's not there's not really much to say about the raid except that it opened up a uh, this door. To, I, this is the beginning of like a a new era in the same way the Matrix was the beginning of a new era. And I, I it's it's interesting because you can sort of delineate this by decade almost perfectly because the Matrix came out in '99. So just at the opening of the the 2000s. And then this came out in, in 2011, just at the opening of the 2010s. And we have not really gone back. We have only gone more in this direction of faster and faster pacing and more direct action, less plot. We, 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 we can talk about that as we talk about the later movies. Well, if, if you think about it, the, the raid's oldest ancestor is probably Die Hard, isn't it? So, and you think of the pacing in that. I mean, that the, we thought we thought that was pretty quick, didn't we? Until we until you see the raid. That's a really cool comparison, especially to look at the pacing differences for movies that are so closely related. Yeah, in terms of plot structure, it's it's difficult to get much closer, right? Except for Bruce Willis, he's coming down and they're going up. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was about to say. <laughs> Just change the direction. We're ready. <laughs> like the only time in the raid that I can remember them trying to sort of emotionally connect with the audience is when the main guy, the Eco Uwas dude, was. I don't know. There's the guy that he had some relationship that was. I think it's his brother. Yeah, I, I wasn't clear on that, but his brother's like, you have an unborn kid at home. Have you thought about that? And then he's like, yeah, "Yeah, I've thought about it every day since we got this assignment. And then they move on to just beating the shit out of people. Right. There's sort of a setup, but uh, then there's no plot, basically. Like, I don't know the plot of this movie, TBH. I don't don't know it. I've seen it twice, and I don't know the plot. I don't think it matters a whole heap, does it? (laughs) If you don't know what the plot is. No, not at all. Not at all. And that's, you know, one of the reasons that I think the the film works so universally. Because it's entertaining, like... You don't need like that little piece of knowledge that he's worried about not being there for his son or you don't even know need to know that that guy's his brother. Like the point of the movie is to display like this high impact kinetic violence. 
and, and there is no uh there there's nothing really to interrupt that you if you start to get bored with what they're doing in this scene just wait 20 seconds because there's going to be another action scene and that's something that you you didn't get before there was i mean this this absolutely makes the matrix uh look look exposition heavy you know um and, and there's very little sentimentality as well but there there is a bit of it like they do try to inject some of that that emotion as they um uh, you know as, as the guy thinks about his pregnant wife you know he's he's limping along and then suddenly he has a flash of uh uh, and the color scheme goes from being dingy to being all like springy and bright, and you you just see his wife's belly bump. Oh, and also he's he's helping his mate who's injured as well, isn't he? He's dragging him around for a bit, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, the bit the bit with the uh, machete, the bit with the machete through the wall. That's brutal, isn't it? It gets it slices through his cheek. Yeah, it's very creative. It's very creative. You wouldn't. Um, it it looked a bit. I don't know, CG ish or something, and it had an unreal kind of look to it, but it uh, was uh, very creative. Just a machete goes through the wall, gets stuck in the the protagonist's like cheek, and but not all the way, just sort of like halfway through his cheek and he <laughs> he has to deal with uh, uh they don't know he's in the wall and he has to deal with getting a machete out of his face without alerting anybody and exactly. without making a noise either yeah yeah and uh, he has another person with him i feel like we can talk about this movie without worrying about spoilers because like we said the plot isn't the point like think about that final fight where the two like it takes two guys to fight like the not the main bad guy but like the 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 most badass dude that the that the criminals he's like have. the psychopath isn't he he just enjoys killing doesn't he he's but he's like a little spider monkey isn't he yeah and like can you think of any movie where like usually and if you were to look at that in like the typical western or hollywood film it's going to be the main hero fighting two bad guys for the finale or something like the yeah, fact absolutely. that they went with you know two two dude taking two dudes to beat one of the bad guys that's that sort of goes against like the the basic empowerment fantasy that we get from a lot of these style of movies. Yeah, and it's and it's nonetheless the challenge for for two of them fighting him though, because because the bloke's absolutely his game, isn't he? Ah, dude, you let me fight a dude that side, I'll throw him around like a football. <laughs> That's if you can get hold of him. He's like super fast though, isn't he? <laughs> He'll wriggle out of your arms. <laughs> well, the thing about fighting someone that small, they can only generate you know so much inertia. And then they still weigh eighty six pounds, <laughs> <laughs> soaking wet. <laughs> I just, like, you know, I just want to starve him and kick him in the head. Giving <laughs> up weight in a fight is usually a super bad idea, and I wouldn't recommend it. So, uh, <laughs> okay, so I, I think it's time for us to uh, take a lateral shift from uh, east to west with our next film, Dread. thought bullet time was cool wait until you see inhaler time <laughs> like they there's so so much of like the 3d movies that we get like avatar the last airbender like they realized that they had like a bag of shit on their hands they're like well let's put this in a theater where we can charge everybody five more dollars so we don't just totally lose our asses on this like the 3d elements of dread were just gorgeously done like it enhanced plot points like they actually used the 3d as a storytelling device to help really? enhance and help the audience understand you know the things that were happening with the um the slow-mo the drug wow I, I i never saw it in the theater um 
because the trailer was terrible. The trailer for this movie, and I think most people agree on this point, uh, made the movie look totally unappealing. I, I, I had no interest in watching it whatsoever. For me, it kind of came and went without me even noticing. I didn't re- didn't even realize there was a film made until like long after it had been in been in the in theaters. Yeah, it flopped. It flopped, and and uh, it, it took like sort of a post release buzz from people that did go to see it uh, to get people more interested in it. And uh, all the people who made this movie um, tried really, really hard to get a sequel made. And the fans, which emerged after the film was already out of theaters. Um, contributed to that but i think i don't know maybe it came just a little bit before the sort of like uh crowd uh crowdfunding or or you know that kind of um audience buzz uh phenomenon uh that really kind of started maybe a few years later i i, I don't know but it um it just it just couldn't get that that push that momentum. well don't worry we're getting mega city one on uh, netflix and carl urban is coming back for it are you serious? I didn't even know that. Oh, yeah, dude. I didn't know like, about that either. So funny story about your boy Roscoe. And I think it was 2015 when I stopped reading comics. But up to that point, I had read every single publication that Dredd had been in. Like whether it was like the 2000 AD features, his actual comics, him and Batman like kicking the shit out of each other. Read all of it. And even I didn't know that they were making a Judge Dredd movie, like a new one, until like like my wife and I, when we were dating, we had a friend that worked at the theater that would give us free tickets. So we just... You know, we'd go Saturday afternoon and catch a movie. And I saw the poster for it and I was like, oh, shit, I love Dread. Let's check this out. We ended up going back and watching it three times in the theater. Wow. Yeah, because cool. it's, it's kind of like they wanted it to flop, didn't they? Because it really did come and go without anybody really realizing, didn't it? I'm telling you, it was the trailer. The trailer was dog shit. Um, but uh, but yeah, this uh, as Roscoe alluded to, this follows a comic book. It's a British comic book. I've never read it. It seems pretty awesome. Um, it's it, it, Dread is essentially a post-apocalyptic story, but it's set after people like rebuild post-apocalypse. And in this diseased and dilapidated hyper-modernity, there are these super cops called judges who compress the entire justice system into one extremely violent person. What are you talking about now? I've seen Mega City 1 and it's beautiful. <laughs> the, the opening line of the film, America is an irradiated wasteland. Within it lies a city. Outside the boundary walls, a desert, a cursed earth. And like for the, there's so many little things like that. The cursed earth is one of the most popular uh, dread storylines where he has to take the long walk. Like when a, when a judge, like when a judge breaks the law, one of their options. And I think they did this in the Stallone movie. Yes, they did. That's how he did it fighting the, um, the, what's it? I can't remember the, the, what, the, the gang. Yeah. With, uh, yeah. And there's, there's just so many little things like that. Like in the, in the opening, you see this big fat person with what looks like what might be a unicycle lion next to him. <laughs> but this is a pull from a, uh, a plot point in like some old eighties dread stories where there's like this protest group of people that call themselves fatties that are so fat that they have to put their gut up on like this little rolling wheel that they keep in front of them. And they slipped oh, wow. that into the film too. <laughs> I only, I only got the reference where he says I am the law. <laughs> that's the only reference i got but it, the beginning actually reminded me of uh of fallout with the narr- the raspy voice narration like wog wog never changes <laughs> 
Um, but it, yeah, this takes place in Mega City One, which is supposed to be like uh, just an urban hellscape that stretches from Boston to Washington D.C. If I if I got my dread lore correct, um, but the urban scenes in this are actually filled uh, filmed in South Africa, uh, uh, Cape Town, which is oh, uh, this is capital. Written by I don't know, I don't know if you noticed, but it's written by Alex Garland, who wrote The Beach and Twenty Eight Days Later. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, The Beach. Uh, that's the one with Leonardo DiCaprio? That's the one. Yeah, I actually like that movie a lot. I don't know if you know, but Alex Garden, Alex, Alex Garland also wrote the, wrote the story. He was a story supervisor for Devil May Cry. That's pretty cool. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's weird. Uh, the original? I mean, because the, uh, the later ones are very different from, from the original. But uh, uh, It's DMC colon Devil May Cry. Is that the original? The uh, 2013. Ooh, that might be the one everyone hates, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I actually wanted... Uh, we have a friend of the show um, who knows a, a bit about Cape Town. And um, I, I thought it was interesting that they chose to film there. Well, they, they probably did it for budgetary reasons. But um, I, I was interested in where they filmed because as I was looking at their shots it actually seemed like a, a genuinely dilapidated city rather than you know kind of like sets that they that they put up or or something of that nature like sometimes you know you're supposed to be in a ghetto but it's like way too clean for a ghetto in a lot of movies but not in this it actually did look kind of messed up so i saw so it was cape town so i asked our friend about about cape town uh i just want to read for you guys what he s- sent to me um because it's kind of interesting he said um i've been there once In those four days' time, I saw more homosexuals than in the rest of my life combined. The people are the most liberal in South Africa. They are the least good-looking population I've come across, and they have a lot of tattoos. The city is a wealthy tourist city with uh, many foreigners, and there are a lot of technology jobs. But it also has uh, very large uh, shantytown areas, which are abjectly poor. Uh, the Western Cape, which is the province that Cape Town is in, is the only province that isn't controlled by the ANC, which is basically the Communist Party in, in South Africa, uh, on the provincial level. It's run by the uh, Democratic Alliance, which models itself after America's Democrats. And it was founded by Jewish anti-apartheid activists, uh, and its policies are best described as ANC light. Uh, Cape Town also has the majority of the colored population, who I guess I guess that means black and mixed, um, who got uh, screwed between the British apartheid and the AMC, leaving them with a drug and gang culture, which is focused around Cape Town. So this is pretty amazing because it seems like an extremely, extremely apt location for. Well, I think that's the first <laughs> example of one of the things that the like one of the reasons I don't think Dread did as well as it could have is I think it respected the consumer, like the the like the actual people watching it, it respected them too much because there's so many times in the film where they show rather than tell and they expect you, you know, as a, you know, a grown ass man to be able to put things together to understand what's happening. Well, you don't even, you don't even have to sit through the, you know, dread, dread at training school montage or anything like that. Do you, like you say, the, they die, they dive you straight in there and they just carry on, don't they? Well, like, uh, like Nat said a few minutes ago, like everything that you need to know about Judge Dredd can be summarized into one simple line. 
Yeah. <laughs> I am the law. <laughs> the actual plot, though, is like Raid, but on steroids. It has more expensive visuals, bigger guns, bigger apartment building, more goons, and a more evil villain played by Cersei from Game of Thrones. But it was released at almost the same time with almost the same story. Well, that's that's why Roscoe mentioned watching Dread. So, uh, so I said, have you seen The Raid? Because they're basically the same film, aren't they? Done, done very, very differently. Yeah, and filmed at the same time. Yeah. Like the, you know, part of the plot is it's a training day as well. Like we've got this, uh, this cute blonde chick that dread is uh, taking out for her, her pass fail throw in the deep end exam. And, you know, from a storytelling perspective, one of the things I loved so much about this movie, like with, with dread being the main character, you would expect him to go through, you know, the hero's journey to learn something about himself and to change and grow by the end of the movie. But that's the exact opposite of what happens. Like dread goes through the flat character arc. He changes the world around him. He is, he is unmoving. He is unchanging. He is the law. But right next to him at the same time, we have a Judge Anderson who completely goes through the hero's journey. And like you can see like through little quotes that Dredd makes to her through the movie that he is slowly seeing that she is coming into herself. She is becoming more competent in this. Well, the other point they don't feel the need to ram, ram home is the fact that because she's psychic, she can feel um exactly what what's going through people's minds as she shoots them that's that's why she that's probably most of the reason why she um why she hesitates because she knows why they're there what their motivations are she knows it all exactly doesn't she she has empathy like one of the great things that um that stood out to me from the showing but not telling in the stallone movie like they spent so much time like beating you over the head with the fact that the lawgiver their gun was genetically keyed to each judge the only things that we got about that was like when uh when dread is loading up and you see like the quick little camera cut like id confirmed on his gun and then later on in the movie like it doesn't like doesn't beat you over the head with it doesn't like subtly try to give it away the bad guy's just going to execute anderson with her own gun and when he goes to do it like you just get the little the same little flash to the little icon and it's like nope this is not the uh id confirmed and boom <laughs> yeah that seems extremely error prone, but I mean, my phone doesn't recognize my <laughs> my <laughs> identification all the time, so uh, it blows his friggin' arm off. <laughs> I can't. I mean, uh, okay. I, I I actually found that uh, the the voice uh, he he changes his gun's mode, which this is so cool. He can change his gun into like any kind of gun with voice commands, and it's like, wow, if only my phone could recognize my voice that well. <laughs> Like, I think another place where you can see that this isn't a Hollywood movie is there's no, like, shitty tacked-on love story. Like, you you just know that if, like, this had been made, like, a real, quote, Hollywood movie, that by the end of the movie, like, Dredd and Anderson would have shared a passionate kiss. Yeah, that's a great point. I really, really like how Dredd, uh, as you said, he is basically a force of nature he does not have a character arc he is uh it's it's almost refreshing to have a flat character jody's the original immovable object isn't he it's just <laughs> he's just set in stone isn't he there, there's no he's an immovable object and an unstoppable force yeah yeah well i mean like i think one of the flat character arcs that a lot of people will be uh familiar with is goku from dragon ball like he's a perfect example of a character who isn't changed. Like he he gets he becomes a better fighter and learns new techniques. But who he is fundamentally never changes from Dragon Ball all the way through Super. The world changes around him. Like the world is influenced by him. And Dread is a, a lot the same. But wasn't like, Dread based on Dirty Harry? 
all I know as far as the inspiration of Dread, it sort of comes from the same place that 40K is. It's a British like satire of like the worst fascism that they can imagine. <laughs> right. And I don't know whether or not this is intentional or subconscious, but this movie is really like uh, anti-Hollywood. Not in that it's uh, against Hollywood. It is the opposite of Hollywood. It's extremely woke. And uh, as I understand it, the comic book was always supposed to be satire as much as it is action. But it's the kind of satire that's normally unacceptable in Hollywood. This movie is two white cops against the multicultural hordes in an urban hellscape. It's also probably one of the best examples of like feminine equality that you ever see. Like when uh when the main bad guy gets her judgment at the end, like like take the movie uh, Wonder Woman from a few years ago. Like every time that like you manage to bring yourself to pay attention, you're watching some guy die on screen in like a horrible fashion. Like even like the sort of love interest, uh, Steve, whatever his name is, he has to die. But none of the women in the movie die. Like even the big bad chick, like even she gets her life spared. Like we'll see like world, scenes of World War One and Two of men basically being shoved into a meat grinder and disassembled. But God forbid anything bad happen to a woman. And in Dread, no, sir. The the characters are acknowledged as being women. That's the thing. They are. They have feminine qualities. They aren't just merely men with tits. With with Judge Dredd and his character, there are only two types of people. There are law there are law law riders and there are law breakers, aren't there? There's, there's no grey area. There's, it doesn't matter what sex you are. It doesn't matter what you are. You either break you either you either obey the law or you break it. Something like I think you can look at Dread 2012 next to Judge Dredd with Stallone and just see like what Hollywood would have done with this. Like Carl Urban had enough respect for the source material that he left his helmet on the entire movie. He never you never see his full face. And like, that's a big thing, like in the comic book, like this thing's been running since I think like the mid seventies and we've still never seen like dreads actual full face. And, you know, sort of like, just look at the stuff that like the emotion, like the, like the, the things that uh, urban is able to sort of elicit with you. And we're only seeing half of his face. Like some of his one liners in this are just absolutely phenomenal. Like the scene where on there on the elevator with that guy that they're trying to take back to precinct, sir, he's thinking about going for your gun. Yeah. He just changed <laughs> his mind. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> um, but, but uh, to talk about the, the women just a, a little bit more for a moment, uh, they, they have sort of, to me, very, very female plot lines. Like the, the female judge is an empath, right? She uses her connection to other people as <clears throat> as a weapon. And that, to me, is very female. And the uh, female antagonist is a former hooker who essentially used her body to get ahead. So there isn't a sense of unreality because women are treated like women. And that doesn't annoy me. <laughs> I mean that that it does not annoy me like so many of the the ways in which women are used and portrayed in Hollywood films annoy me. Um but uh if I if I could I'd like to talk a bit about um kind of the real life connections uh that I see in the movie. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a history lesson, but um uh this came out It's also in, a bit of a future lesson, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Um more like a present <laughs> lesson, but um this came out in 2012. <laughs> You know, that's almost 10 years ago at this point, which is hard to believe. But over the last uh, 20 years, law enforcement has changed like crazy. So crime exploded in urban areas in the 1960s for a lot of obvious reasons. Um, 
And uh, But Hillary Clinton gave her now infamous super predator speech in the 90s and then became senator of New York a few years later. And what followed from there was an inflation and militarization of uh, police forces all over America with New York City leading the charge. And at the time that Dredd was made, the NYPD was the seventh largest army in the world. It's probably bigger now. Um, and this trend was followed all across America, of course, with even like, you know, uh, Midwestern police forces having things like uh, APCs, ar armored uh armored vehicles decommissioned from the military um i remember uh there was like a thing on reddit a while back like a, a kid had cancer and so they had like a parade for him in their in their small town it's very lovely uh and he got to ride in like something that it looked like a tank that the police have <laughs> there was a time when like like i saw like all the uh, militarization and buildup of our police forces when i was so pretty hard libertarian and i never understood like why this was being done what this was until all the ferguson riots happened and then i realized we just didn't have the political will to actually use what we had built right it was actually i became aware of this for the first time uh when black lives matter first manifested so i yeah, thought like okay stuff right yeah like around mike uh, brown right and i went to their website the black lives matter website and they actually had a page with all of the things that they were organizing to achieve and one of those things was demilitarization of the police and i'm like oh okay yeah that makes sense of course this was a long time ago um and uh now of course you won't really find that information on anything related to Black Lives Matter because, you know, it just evolved into nothing. I question whether or not they even wrote those points. But um, uh, the result of this militarization and, and expansion, especially the expansion, was that crime has gone down by a lot, a lot. Um, and, and with New York City leading the charge, that has seen the most change in crime control. Uh, of course, abortion also greatly helped with that, like it or not. But um, what's funny to me is that none of these liberal ur urbanites realize that they live in a literal police state. And this is another unwinding of the leftist regime. They're uh, kind of obligated to hate cops, which I see all the time among liberals, but at the same time compelled by what I think is white presence in the country still to control crime. So their choices here when you think about it, or either police state or daily Holocaust, like in Dread. Well, what's the difference between Dread and the three strike rule that uh, you know Clinton dropped on the uh, the black community? Two strikes. Two strikes. <laughs> you're off the cubes. <laughs> one strike. You have one strike with Dread. <laughs> like I, I. This is probably one of my top five favorite movies. Like, there's so many things that I just adore about it. Like whether it's, you know, Judge Dredd's like just snappy as all hell, like one liners. I think the longest speech he gives is when he um, he hacked like he uh, gets into the communications and just lets everybody know what is like he's by himself. His his uh, partner's been captured and he gives just like this, what, 15 second speech. That's like his longest uh, dialogue in the movie. Like before that, like there's this scene where he uh, tells a bunch of people like, you know, if they don't clear the area, lethal force is going to be enacted and they have 20 seconds. One of the guys yells to him, it's you who's going to do the complying judge. There's 10 of us, only two of you. Why don't you step out and we blow the fuck out of you? 10 seconds to comply. Fuck you, judge. You got five. Thanks for the heads up. <laughs> he just lights him up. 
Like that's, <laughs> I, I love the movie so much. And like, like one of the things you'll see, like, I think the reason the Marvel movies have far and away been a lot better than the DC movies is the Marvel comics aren't ashamed that they're based on comic books. DC is like, okay, let's make Superman real and gritty and destroy anything that people loved about him so we can make it modern and put our own fingerprints on the character. Well, Marvel's that's, that's like, why I always dislike Nolan's Batman, because I, I thought there was a deep contempt for the character and, and, the, and the rogues gallery and the lore, wasn't there? Dude, I can tell you, like, say, if you told me Chris, oh, he's at, uh, Nolan's actually read Batman. Yeah, what the fuck has he read? Um, Batman, um, the Dark Probably Knight Probably the same Returns. as everybody else, the Dark Knight Returns, year and the one. Killing Joke. The same like, old stuff, it? yeah. And, like, with Dread, like, they are so respectful of the content that it comes from. Um, I mean, hell, once again, just look at the Stallone. Like, you, just the fact that Stallone walks around without his helmet on for 99% of the movie tells you that they have no reverence or respect for the source material. Was it, the other thing as well, isn't, isn't it refreshing to have a hero that's actually proactive rather than reactive the whole of the time, <laughs> like modern heroes are? Well, it's so cool because this is just a day in the life of what he does every day. And I think it's at the end of the movie, they're walking out of the uh, the building. And um, the magic Negro, who's like the uh, like one of the only diversity hires who's in charge of like she's chief judge. She so asks him what happened. And he just says drug bust. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Looks like yeah. you hell. <laughs> perps were uncooperative. <laughs> <laughs> the casual disregard for life is also a kind of amazing. Not because I hate life, just because it's so gritty and pulpy and they do it so well. Like there's a scene where uh, they warn a bum to, uh, you know, clean up his shit and, and get out of there before they come back or else, uh, uh, you know, he's going to he's going to go to the cubes or their, their jail. And um, he's like, yeah, OK, uh, the bum is still there when they're about to leave the building. But then the like front garage door or whatever like this huge metal slab of the building closes right on top of the bum and just turns him into a pancake into a bloody pancake and it's like there's no sympathy for this homeless man whatsoever <laughs> he was about to get arrested but instead he died <laughs> the thing we haven't mentioned yet the the holly the one hollywood trope they did slip in was the uh corrupt coppers weren't it yeah and that was cool though that yeah, reminded yeah. me of like a Metal Gear Solid game or something where it's like they up the ante. Now he's not fighting against random mooks. He's uh he's fighting against people who are just as trained as he is. Well, and we get some really cool stuff out of that. Like what Judge has to do to what Dread has to do to overcome them is amazing. But also there's one of them that's a chick. When we see Anderson sort of coming to the, you know, like becoming the hero, they send one of the female judges to go to go kill her. Says, I'll have her cold. You know, she'll see me that I'm a judge too. She'll hesitate and I'll end her. And Anderson turns the corner and this is the psychic. This is the empath. No hesitation. She sees this corrupt female judge. The entire confrontation is Anderson coming around the corner and then lighting this bitch up like a Christmas tree. Like it, <laughs> it doesn't hesitate. Like it doesn't like the conflict is so fast and minimal. We, we probably have more time of like Anderson walking away and seeing this other chick dead on the floor than we do of like the actual conflict. Like it's just so quick and to the point. Like they don't drag anything yeah. out too long. Yeah. Like the pace there's, is just there's phenomenal. actually one line. There's one line where she says, I'm your backup, and then boom, dead. Just like <laughs> Very that. Very cool. Like that yeah. <laughs> that's sort of the moment where we realize that, you know, Anderson has been affected by dread because she's just dishing out, you know, violence as fast and as efficient as dread. Yeah, she's the, she's, she definitely learns these lessons, doesn't she? She learns that these people are fucking animals and you got to put them down. <laughs> 
but definitely um, like if if you're if you're listening to the sound of our voices and you've not seen dread do it like hell buy the freaking dvd so they'll uh, get this uh, mega city one netflix series out sooner <laughs> earlier you mentioned the uh, the slow mo i think we should just explain that for uh, for a moment uh, the visual calling card of this movie i would say something it's kind of known for is the hyper slow mo i mean of course the matrix did this and has been you know parodied for it it's very iconic but the complexity and frequency of the slow-mo scenes in Dread is uh, much greater, right? Well, with The Matrix, bullet time is like a feature, but the the slow-mo, like they use it for a lot of 3D effects. It's a drug. When a person takes it, it slows down their experience with the world. Like yeah, so that's the thing I don't get. Surely if your experience is slowed down to that, your reactions would be quicker, wouldn't they? Nope. Yeah. Well, that's the... Um... I think that's part of the conceit. That's the caveat of the drug. Well, I, I I feel like they should have done more with that because um, there's something like this in the, if anyone's seen Cowboy Bebop, but not this, think of the first episode of Cowboy Bebop. You spray something into your eye and you get like these super amazing reflexes and you become a better fighter. I expected them to kind of do that for this. If you are experiencing time uh, at 1% of normal, um, so that everything seems like it's moving slowly around you. Uh, why, why can't you kind of get a leg up on Dread that way? And none of, no one can. Like, Dread is faster than everyone in the movie. They never even really bring it up. So I feel like they didn't do enough with that at all. Well, we get this great scene that it shows us. Like, the point of the drug, it, you know, it's not a combat drug. It's nothing like that. The point of the drug is to enhance and sort of lengthen pleasurable experiences. Like the best example of that in the movie is when Mama is taking that bath and they're like doing all the 3D effects with the smoke and the water and stuff. Yeah. But there's also, and you know, this ends up coming back around to the end. When Anderson and Dredd first get in, they find these three dead bodies, these people who had been drugged on slow-mo, skinned, and then thrown a hundred stories. And they experience it all at 1% of normal time. Yeah. So, and you know, that's where it comes in. Like with this, not just being like, hey, this is bullet time in the Matrix. Look how cool this is. Like, no, this is like a pretty important plot point that builds like the immersion in the movie. It build, it, It's a good piece of world building. Like they exactly. actually use it's, it's world effect. building. It doesn't really contribute to the plot so much, I would say, in that it doesn't ever become, uh, there's no conflict that it creates that requires resolution. Um, but it is, it is a part it is an ingrained part of the world and not merely a visual effect. So in that way, it is it, it provides something in a, in a way more memorable than than what was done in The Matrix or more. I don't know, more, I guess, just has more of an impact on you emotionally. Well, you 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 start to imagine like these dudes that get thrown all the way down to their deaths that get tortured and they're having to experience it in ultra slow motion. Yeah. Yeah. And there is kind of the MacGuffin-y thing where it's like, uh-oh, it turns out this is the building where they produce this drug that is running wild on the city. And that Mama is going to use like slow-mo and the money she's making off of that to expand her her control. Not only from the uh, the had block that the movie set in known as Peach Trees. Isn't that a pleasant name? Yeah. <laughs> Peach Trees. Yeah, that's great. Like post-apocalyptic satire where you have just like dilapidated hellscape and, you know, Nice little names like, you know, Paradise Vista or Peach Trees or, you know, something of that nature. <laughs> there are no trees in the entire movie. No trees. The I think one of the things that just sort of shows you, like, this is a movie that's not about compromise. It's not about negotiations. 
is that final confrontation between uh, Dread and Mama. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. Mama explains to Dread, it's like, you know, you can't can't kill me because I've got this transmitter. It's hooked up to a uh, a bomb. It'll blow up everything. And like, well, this is this is the per- perfect example where he's proactive and not reactive, isn't it? Right. I'll see if I. Yeah. Here we go. I got it pulled up. And she like she's showing it to him. It's like it synced to my heartbeat. My heartbeat stops. The building blows, and everyone in it. Ash, you got no way out. Judge, put your gun down. Dread just just looks at her. Keeps the gun pointed at her. Do you know how many people live in this block? This isn't a negotiation. Your sentence is death. You can't afford to take that risk. So Dread gut shoots her. Goes over and picks her up, basically by her hair. We're a kilometer above ground. What do you figure the range is on that thing? Could it get through a hundred levels of concrete? How about two hundred? Let's find out. Drags her over to a window, doses her with the slow-mo, and smashes her bitch ass through it. Like, I can't imagine any other movie, like, treating a, even a female villain like this. Like, this is the, the way that a, a man would be treated. Well, because normally, normally you get the uh, the protagonist punches punches evil female. Evil female falls to the floor, pretends to cry. Uh, protagonist goes, goes to comfort her, and then X happens, which is either being shot, stabbed, or scratched across the face, isn't it? That's the way it normally ro- rolls down in a Hollywood flick, doesn't it? And Dredd judges her just like he would judge any other criminal or every other criminal that he has judged through the movie. Like, absolutely no compromise. Yeah, and the uh, plot mechanic is probably the best plot point out of all three of the movies we're, we're talking about today. Uh, the, I mean, everyone understands, like, Wi-Fi range and stuff, right? So I think um, anyone anyone watching would get what's going on there, but it's just really clever. Like they use the height of the building. They, uh, they use the idea of the technology involved. They don't just treat it like it's some magic, you know, throwaway technology. They treat it like it's a real thing. It kind of comes out of nowhere with how clever it is. Um, I, I, I don't know if I'm the only one who found that really cool, but. I think that plot point at the end kind of proves that slow-mo doesn't enhance your rea- reactions. It just it just changes your perception of time because otherwise she could have ripped that out of her arm and it would have gone off, wouldn't it, on the way down? That's a good point. That's a very good point. But maybe she's just not that clever too, you know? <laughs> she was also dealing with a uh, with a gut shot at the yeah. time. And like, like there's this big window like overlooking the drop. They're on the top floor. Judge just picks her up and smashes her through it. Like, here we go. Citizen Mama, your crimes are multiple homicides in the manufacture and distribution of narcotics. How do you plead? She says nothing. Defense noted. (laughs) (laughs) Right. She actually uh, inhales the drug. So she's basically like saying, like, do it, faggot. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and, you know, that's pretty cool from the villain standpoint. Like, Mama is... She is a competent woman, and there's there's times where we see like like when uh, her uh, her her mooks capture Anderson, like they're super excited to do all kinds of rape because that's how these animals are. She's like, no, <laughs> bullets in the head and chest, and we're done. Like that's how we're doing this. Mm. Uh, there's there's a great scene where one of the black guys tries to BBC post on the uh, female judge. And she screws with him telepathically until he pisses himself. <laughs> yeah, I remember that bit. That was good. I found that very satisfying. Yeah, because because ev- everyone assumes that she's a weak character, don't they, Anderson? And she and but she's not, is she? She's as scary as Judge Dredd. Like she's a long time, uh, like a long time supporting character in the uh, in the comics. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, like um. One of the reasons I wanted a sequel so bad is because the director wanted to bring in like sort of these supernatural elements that the series got. Like what, the, the dark uh, judge, the dark judges. Did he want to bring the them? Dark in? judges. 
Yeah. And Anderson was key into stopping these like sort of ethereal judges that represent like they're basically the four horsemen, except evil judges from a parallel universe or two. Like they're huh. uh, their main the main bad guy is um is Judge Death. And he saw living like only the living commit crimes, so he eliminated all life on his planet. <laughs> hey, hey, good point. Like <laughs> even even like in the comics when we have uh, Dread dealing with these supernatural like almost ethereal bad guys. There's one of them that's like given his big uh big evil speech and Dredd's reaction is to just punch him so hard that his fist almost comes out the back of this uh this thing's head. <laughs> and and it's sort of that that same attitude that I feel like the movie just just brought to life so well. Like the director and even Carl Urban, they didn't want to make it like about them. They like these are people that love Judge Dredd, that love the stories and they wanted, you know, People that just walk into the movie theater to get the same experience that they had gotten from growing up with the comics. I think Carl Urban's a pretty underrated leading man. I mean, everything I've seen him in, he's immensely watchable, and he always does it to, to the best of his ability, doesn't he? Dude, with half a freaking face available in this movie, he conveys more emotion and nuance than most actors can manage, like, you know, having a fully Botoxed face. <laughs> <laughs> They have more face than normal. They can't do it. Like his friggin' um, like his his scowl that he maintains through this movie is so friggin' like all the dread comic fans like recognize that scowl that he carries. Just absolutely adore this film. Really can't can't harp on it enough. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it too. I, I will um bring out a couple of my critiques, at least the first time I watched it. Um so I, I did. I wasn't expecting a story that had, would only take place in a single uh, building. I, I, I wished to see more of the scope and 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 you know a world of uh, of dread. Um, I guess maybe that's a a bit of a tribute to how well the uh, uh, the the movie kind of like shows and 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 doesn't tell. You know, I want to see what's outside of those walls. Shouldn't a good film leave you wanting more rather than make leaving you feeling satisfied? I don't like that adage because uh, rather than making me want more, I like to be left satisfied. <laughs> Uh, I, not that I hated this or, or was unsatisfied. I just, I just wanted to see more. I just really like post-apocalyptic settings, like Mad Max or something, where you get, you know. And I, I want to see a lot of it. Let me, let me, um, not necessarily offer a rebuttal, but a different way of looking at it. Like this is a day in the life of Judge Dredd. Like compare it to the the Stallone movie again. And the Stallone movie is this sweeping story about corruption within the ranks of the government and all this kind of stuff that's just will literally affect everyone who lives in the megacity. But with with Dread 3D, we get, you know, it's just a day of what happens to Dread. And I feel like just from looking at this single day, like the opening scene where he guns the dudes down on the freeway and whatnot, like just from that, I feel like we're able to infer more about the world than we learn in a lot of movies. Like, yeah, I feel like we know more about Mega City One than we do about the ins and outs and the workings of the Matrix from watching three of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you're right. Um, I guess maybe what I would have preferred is a bit of a middle ground between Judge Dredd and and Dredd. Um, where maybe the scope is a little bit broader, um, but you know what? This is that. This is what the story is. You know, it's all it's all encased in this building. They told they told the story that they needed to tell. Um, you know, they they gave it the 
the treatment that that it needed to have and it really does feel like a complete work unto itself i also i i'm not a fan of the buddy cop thing with the with the lady i i really would have liked to see um dread stand more on his own i, I sort of have similar qualms actually much worse qualms with uh, uh fury road mad max fury road well speaking of fury road i mean that's allegedly a feminist film isn't it but don't but don't you think dread is far more is far more feminist in the way in the way it treats it it treats its uh, female characters I, I don't know about that it's it's just not up its own ass with the with the with the woman stuff i mean it has female characters but again you know it the, the difference between feminism and normal personism is that uh feminism doesn't treat women as though they are women it treats them mm. like they're some magical animal whereas you know in normal personism they're women and and this is definitely a normal personist uh film <laughs> well the 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 claim for feminists is they like their basic goal is to have women treated like men and they damn sure get it in judge dread or or dread 3d i i guess uh the the thing that i like about all the movies we're talking about today uh is that uh in typical um you know film industry works uh i i'm always as though i'm listening to a dubstep track waiting for the bass to drop i'm always waiting for like the drum to drop or the uh <laughs> you know, the strong whammon to drop, you know, or the bass black guy to drop. And, uh, Oh, the strong woman got dropped. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, she did. Indeed. She got dropped a kilometer, but in, in these movies, you know, there's none of that. There's just the, uh, they just try to tell a good story with great action and believable characters. And that's really the important thing. Everything is very believable and just cool in this. The rule of cool is definitely uh definitely on full full display in Dread 3D. Right. You can have amazing things happen and keep it believable without women suddenly becoming magic versions of men. One of the things that pisses me off so much about whether it's the new Star Wars movie or whether it's Brie Larson's Captain Marvel is like, you know, I'll I'll make a I'll make a super simple comparison. Like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like look what's happened to Captain America. By the time Infinity War rolls around, he's lost his shield, which is basically an extension of him. He's a fugitive from his own country. Like he had to hunt and almost kill his best friend. Like he had to go through a lot to become this badass that we see in sort of like the what I consider the conclusion of the MCU. Thor. Thor loses everyone around him his father his brother his fellow asgardians he loses an eye his hammer gets broken iron man like he goes through like so many falls from grace and like his little trilogy of movies whether it's substance abuse whether it's building an iron man suit in a box of with a box of scraps that he finds in a cave like all these characters have to suffer so much to become you know the hero Brie Larson just shows up and she's like, hey, I'm the strongest and greatest Avenger or <laughs> that bitch in the Star Wars movies. It's like, hey, I know it took three movies and like a decade for Luke to become like almost a Jedi. No, no, I'm literally better at everything than everyone. Never been on a spaceship before, but turns out I'm a better mechanic and pilot than Chewbacca and Han Solo. Get the fuck out. Like Anderson, we actually see her go through the arc like and get to the point where she is confident and using her psychic abilities like her growing into this character just doesn't happen like magically like she has to go through a lot of shit before she's so confident that you know when that that female corrupt judge comes up i'm your backup no response just 
Well, even even when she goes into the black guy's head, it's no, it's no picnic for her, is it? Because he starts getting the upper hand, then she kind of realizes how to combat it. She doesn't just go in there and make him piss himself, does she? She has to she has to fight for it and earn it, doesn't she? Yep. And yep. 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 So we we should probably move on to the next movie before I just talk about dread like for the next three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, let's talk about a character that struggles, but not to become the badass to fight for his dog. That is, of course, John Wick. The man clawing his way out of hell. <laughs> yeah, all the characters in these movies are, are chads, just absolute chads. And the director of John Wick is uh, literally named Chad. Um, this is the first um, big film he's done uh, since The Crow in 1994. So that's 20 years between major action films. The Crow, of course, being um, uh, the movie where uh, uh, Bruce Lee's son, Brandon Lee, famously died in real life uh, due to a uh, kind of a bad practices in, in an action scene um, with, a, with a gun. Um, but... Uh, uh, this movie uh, is also uh, one of the uh, first big efforts from a writer who was kind of struggling in Hollywood. It was originally called Scorn, uh, but Keanu Reeves, star of this one, uh, suggested uh, naming it after the main character, who in turn is named after the writer's grandfather. So I found that pretty interesting. So uh, what's it about? Like the other movies, it's kind of it's kind of simple. Theon Greyjoy kills a guy's dog. That guy happens. To oh, I've be got the a good, I've got a good quote. Speaking of the dog, it was uh, I can't remember. It was some screenwriter said it. He said he said you can't kill the dog. You'll piss off the audience, and they won't sit through the rest of the movie because they'll still be thinking about the dog. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I I don't think that's correct. <laughs> how, how cool is it? Like compared to quote big Hollywood. That instead of him like fighting for the love of his life or whatever, that it was it was his fucking dog that was the motivator that turned him into this this Genghis Khan punishment that just culled their entire population. Well, that's the thing. It's like if you really want to make some make somebody out to be truly evil, they'll kill a dog, won't they? That's just the way to make make someone seem to be truly evil and beyond redemption and deserving of death, doesn't it? Well, the dog is kind of a proxy for his great love. I believe that. Um, She's uh, uh, his wife uh, died of cancer, and it, it apparently she bought him a dog in the in in her last moments before dying, and had it like posthumously delivered to him with a letter. And so this is something to you know that letter like that letter had tears in my eyes, dude. Like that she knew yeah. that how hard that it was going to be for John to continue his life to get up every day. And that she wanted to give him something to love, you know, other than that absolutely badass 1969 Mustang. Did, did, did you think, do you think she knew about his previous life and therefore didn't want him to slip back into it? Did, do you think she, it could have been some, a bit more, like, a bit more thinking than that, that she thought maybe he'd slip back into his older life if he didn't have something to love? I think it could be, but I don't think it needed to be. Yeah. I think, right. Yeah. You know, so one of the things that happens through the course of the movie, he starts off with the Mustang. And then he ends up with a, you know, he starts with the Ford Mustang. Then he's cruising around in that, that fastback Chevelle, the Chevy. And then the final car is, uh, I think a direct shout out to the far right politics. He's driving around in that Dodge Challenger. <laughs> 
Like they may as well have painted like I don't think it could have been more clear that there were metaphors for America in this movie if they had like painted each card like one red, one white, and one blue in succession. <laughs> <laughs> Like, there's a lot of beautiful metaphor in this movie. And, like, I think uh, Theon Greyjoy, like, early on in the film, we get this uh, scene of John, like, just he goes out on a out on a runway and just starts tearing ass up in his sweet car. And we see Theon Greyjoy, like, sort of doing um, poor man's versions of, like, the drifting and the maneuvers and the precision driving that John Wick did. Mm. Like, throughout the whole movie, like, we see John Wick just taking life without without hesitation. And it's a lot harder to kill a person than it is to, you know, kill someone's dog, like kill someone's pet. And that's all that Theon Greyjoy can muster. A lot of the movie, I think, demonstrates like how much of a shadow, how much of a an opposite he is to John Wick. Actually, I don't remember. Did did, did Theon J- Greyjoy do it himself or did he get one of his lackeys to do it? He did it. He did. And he it. was yeah. super proud of it. Yeah. So, but I want to lay something out here, like for the audience, for anyone who's unfortunate enough not to have seen this movie. John Wick's wife dies. She sends him a dog, and it's a beautiful beagle named Daisy. Like, I actually had a beagle named Daisy growing up, so, like, instant emotional connection for me. And uh, Theon Greyjoy tries to buy his Mustang. No, he's not doing it. But ends up, you know, breaking into his house, kills his dog, steals his car, takes it to a uh, takes it to a chop shop where we get John Leguizamo, who I actually kind of like as an actor. I think he is usually pretty entertaining when he shows up. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen, I haven't seen him do anything bad. He, he does a, he come, turns up and does the best of what he's got, doesn't he? He does. Yeah, I mean, he's almost like a cameo in this movie too. Yeah, and he's he's standing there in the chop shop, and Greyjoy, I, I'm, I hate that we're calling him that, but close enough, right? You <laughs> <laughs> ask him, where did you get this car? And Greyjoy is like the son of the most powerful Russian mobster in the city. And Leguizamo is so pissed off about him stealing this car. Like, we don't know who John Wick is at this point. Like, the only thing we know is he drives around really intensely, and then he gets the shit kicked out of him by a bunch of Russian mob guys. Well, to all intents and purposes at this point, he's just a normie, isn't he? Nobody knows who he is, do they? Just a normal guy. And Leguizamo asked Greyjoy, where did you get this car? Just, you know, I, I took it from some, some nobody and killed his dog. Leguizamo, like, loses his shit and punches this guy. And there's a confrontation and everything. And there's a moment where the guy's dad calls. It's like, why did you hit my son? And all John Leguizamo's character says is, he stole John Wick's car and killed his dog. Oh. And that's the entire conversation. Like, they do this amazing buildup that, like, you know, from the trailer and the previews, I think the audience sort of has an idea of who John Wick is supposed to be. But the storytelling in the actual movie itself, that we learn more about him from other people's reactions to him. Like, his name being said. And this Russian mobster just completely understands why this guy that runs a chop shop bloodied his son's nose well he, do, he doesn't wear it like a badge though does he that the, the being the most feared hitman he 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 just does what he does doesn't he he's, he's one of those type of people well nothing is treated with gravitas in this movie like when the dog when wick's dog is killed it's with an off-screen thunk there is no like slow motion someone bringing a club down and then you hear like an echoey bonk 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 you know like other movies would do that right well also um, also the puppy crawls its way back to him doesn't it because he wakes you're up you're gonna make me cry I'm sorry. like john john gets his ass beat and he's laid in the floor like trying to magically heal his kicked in stomach and face and when we cut to the next morning the dog has crawled over to him and john is just holding it and sobbing and there's there's two scenes in the movie where we really get emotion from john like the uh when when john gets captured i think towards the end of the second act 
you know, he's he's zip tied to a chair. He's got they're getting ready to to execute him. And the Russian mobsters like all this over a dog. And this is when John loses his shit, tells him that like that dog was a gift from my wife, from my dead wife. And this dog was, you know, my way of not having to grieve alone, to not go through this grief of losing the most important person in my life by myself. And you took that from me. So you stand aside and give me your son or you die screaming right next to him. Like fucking cold chills, dude. So badass. Yeah. And that's the whole conversation because there's barely a moment of downtime in this. And that's what makes John Wick like the epitome of the gun kata genre. Like this is where we've reached the peak with the most modern gun kata movie. And we've really we've escalated the pacing once again. Conversations are short. And even then conversations are had while punching or shooting someone <laughs> like in the middle of lines. They will a, a random mook will run into frame and, you know, John Wick Wick will take them out and and you know dialogue scenes are probably maybe six lines before they move on to the next action scene there's really no uh there there's no stopping the action it is non-stop action from beginning to end there's barely any plot and this is the ultimate show don't tell you know we mentioned earlier how people react to john wick that is a perfect way of telling us who he is what he's about without having to go into his background at all that much and it's also very funny i mean this this movie is kind of a comedy in in a weird weird way it's it's a comedy it's like your classic 80s like schwarzenegger or whatever film with like the 2000s gun carter twist isn't it and we're able to laugh at what john does to the bad guys because they killed his fucking dog they they either killed the dog or condoned the killing of the dog didn't they you know i said that there's some really cool like sort of symbolism and stuff in this movie like do you remember when you know, John is still like he he buries his dog out in the uh, the yard of his home. He goes back inside and he literally smashes the foundations of this life that he and his wife had built together. He takes a sledgehammer and actually breaks and destroys the foundations of their home, of their life. And what's under the foundation, the guns, the armor, the weird coins that I don't understand what they really mean yet. Right. Gold coins like a video game, like a video game. <laughs> like a psychopathic Sonic. <laughs> there's there's Those another scene where we get so yeah, much really good show, but not tell when uh, the the kill team comes to his house. And one thing I'll say about like the production of this movie, Keanu Reeves worked his ass off so he could do almost all of the stunts himself, and that allowed them to like do longer cuts and not have to jump from camera to camera to hide stuntmen. Like they were able to really drag out like these single shots in the fights. Because Keanu was doing all this shit himself, and it made the violence and the action seem so much more real. I think that's one of the things that contributes to like the dynamic. Yeah, you're right. I I saw the uh, you know the meme video where uh, Keanu Reeves is at a uh, shooting range and he's running around with multiple guns and he's making shots on everything and it's really really impressive. And you think, wow, Keanu Reeves is really he's a really legit guy. He's dedicated to this role, um, but it it didn't really. I didn't really reflect on how that might actually improve the filmmaking process and the cinematography of the movie other than, you know, Keanu Reeves holds a gun a little more realistically than a, than another actor would. But you're right. You're absolutely right. Not having to swap him in and out is a big advantage. Do you remember the uh, the end of that scene when the cop shows up? 
Uh, oh, the be- uh, the beginning of the dog killing scene. Or no, 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 no. When when John Wick is back for the first time and a whole bunch of people invade his house, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the police officer shows up. I think that scene shows us more of who he is because like police officer shows up. Hi, John. And what's the officer's name? Peter or something like just super normal. Yeah. yeah. Like John, this absolute unbelievable badass is treating this cop like with respect, with dignity. Like, no, the cop knocks on the door. And John's like, hey, Peter. Hey, John. Noise complaint? Noise complaint. You working again, John? No, just working through some personal stuff. All right. You have a good night. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And and reflecting on that scene um, after two more movies have come out makes me see it a little bit differently because um, I didn't I actually didn't see the sequels, but I've um, read a lot about them and I um, I intended to watch the second one, but never really got around to it. But apparently it opens up the lore of the of this movie a lot and and that's a that's another thing that this movie has uh over the the last two we talked about is that uh there's this whole like almost video game-ish kind of of lore where where assassins aren't merely you know uh, hitmen and assassins aren't aren't just merely hired guns they're sort of this whole underground society yeah it's kind of very similar to wanted isn't it have you seen wanted uh the one with james mcavoy and angelina jolly in it Talk about a movie not respecting its source material. <laughs> I've, I haven't read one, too. I've only seen the film. <sighs> the The comic is written by this dude named Mark Miller. He's the um, shit. What's the guy that does the Transformer? He's the Michael Bay of comics. And um, okay. and Mark Miller's shtick is that, hey, wait a minute. There's way more supervillains than there are superheroes. And in Wanted, the supervillains realized, like, hey, for every hero, there's like 40 of us. So let's all just organize and stomp the shit out of them. <laughs> and that's where the story really picks up that villains run everything now. And instead of doing that in the movie, they're like, Oh, we're secret assassins that improve the world by killing the right people at the right time. <laughs> and the comic is just like, these are, these are absolute self-indulgent assholes that are, you know, just a hundred percent in it for them. What can, what can this, what can be in a murder for murderer for hire do for me? And they pushed out of like doing that in the, uh, in the movie. And I think, were worse for it. Well, in in John Wick, I guess it's sort of similar, except that uh, being being a, a mercenary gun for hire is like it's sort of a an amoral thing. It's like you know, sure you'll work with CD people, maybe you'll you'll even kill innocent people. It's not really expressed, but it's just so it's just a it's just a part of how this world operates. And I, I think in the subsequent films, they escalate that more and more and more where assassins are just a part of the way that a, that society works. Well, I was reading a bit about the third one. The third one's not even the end. It's gonna. It's just going to carry on op- opening up and opening up the lore even more. I think I'm going to have to watch two tonight. Yeah, I'm going to see three tonight. If I didn't have a uh, have a two and a half year old who was, uh, you know, an absolute terror, I would uh, I'd be going to see three tonight myself. I had to make a deal with my wife that uh, the Sunday after Godzilla comes out, I'm going to try to go to a matinee while he naps. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I I start to leave the house and leave her with the kid. Don't you dare leave me with this little monster. (laughs) I I just don't give money to Hollywood. So uh, I was actually going to download John Wick 3. um, But I haven't seen John Wick 2. So I didn't. I know it is sort of a continuous. It's a continuum, so I didn't want to. I didn't want to ruin it. But uh, it's it's pretty amazing that they've made in just five years. They've made three movies already. Uh, they're really pumping them out, and apparently they're all good. So well, one of the things I liked about John Wick, 
um, there's this magic hotel where like assassins and people that work in the industry stay. And the one rule is you don't work there. Like you don't do work there, like which is wet work. And this chick named Perkins violates this rule. And she gets treated the same way that Mama does in Judge Dredd. She doesn't get special treatment for, for you know, having a set of titties and a vagina. <laughs> like, she has to pay the piper because she broke the rules. Like, I thought, you know, that was the kind of storytelling that we just don't get in Hollywood anymore. Well, that's, I thought that was feminism, treating women exactly the same as men. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure a feminist would be able to spin it in some way that the patriarchy crushed her, and that's why she got shot. <laughs> Well, it was all dudes that shot her. <laughs> yeah, <it> was, but, <laughs> but she fucked around and found out. She compromised on the one rule that she was supposed to follow. One simple fucking rule. They asked this chick to follow and she couldn't do it. Women. Absolute <laughs> state of women. <laughs> um, but when that when that officer arrives at John Wick's home and and casually regards all the dead people uh, in the doorway, um, it just made me think of the subsequent movies and how like, okay, well, now in, in light of, of, of the, the later plot um, lore or whatever, uh, maybe the officer sees that, oh, he's doing assassin stuff. And this is as illegal or as, you know, surprising as someone playing loud music in their garage, <laughs> you know? Where he's like, you know, you'd come over. Hey, can you can you quiet that down there? We're getting complaints. Like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. And then you just move on, right? So perhaps in Assassin World, as I've seen this called in various places, Assassin World, um, this is just sort of a a, a, a routine thing. So you know, it's it's it, it changes the the feel a bit. If John Wick is such a legend, then I suppose the police would go like, "Do I want to die or not?" <laughs> so it's just it's quite a simple choice, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's what I mean. In, in in my first watching, when the movie first came out, the feel is like, okay, so John Wick's been doing this for a long time, such that the police officer isn't even surprised to see a dozen dead men in his home. And uh, now it's like, oh, well, assassins are, are common in this world. So that's why the police officer isn't surprised. You know what I mm. mean? So it, it actually changes the context a little bit. There's a lot of simplicity in the first in chapter one of John Wick, where we're given these hints of things like the coins, like the hotel, little different pieces of world building that make the uh, make the film and the story seem more tangible, I guess. And I'm, I'm really excited to see how much that opens up in the in the uh, following films. Yeah, absolutely. The only thing I didn't like about this movie are the stylized subtitles which I found to be a little bit irritating and tacky. Like they're sort of where certain words are sort of displayed in like a comic book fashion. At least it wasn't comic sounds that <laughs> at least it wasn't papyrus, like an avatar that <laughs> that pissed me right off. It reminded me of some of the stuff that I think specifically the uh, Guy Ritchie movie rock and roll. did a lot of that. Yeah. I haven't seen rock oh, and okay. roll in a while. Rock and roll is not that good. The first time you watch it. Cause it's, Especially you compare it to these movies, it is so slow and plotting. But it gets a lot better after you watch it once or twice. Yeah, well, the Guy Ritchie films are all about the snappy banter, aren't they? He's kind of, he's kind of like a British Quentin Tarantino, only more talented, isn't he? I'm a. It, it's pretty interesting that you know he made uh, Lockstock and Snatch, and then got married to Madonna and made shitty movies for like a decade, <laughs> and then like he got divorced from her and made I think Rock and Roll, like Rock and Roll, it might be my favorite uh, Guy Ritchie movie. I quite enjoyed the Sherlock Holmes that he did. Do you seen those, Roscoe? Were those the ones with old uh, Robert Downey Jr.? Yes. 
I did. And they had a lot of sort of that same snappiness that his uh, crime movies did. And I think the latest Robert, is it the latest Rob version of Robin Hood and the latest King Arthur are both Guy Ritchie's as well? Huh. I've not. I think you're more familiar with those than we yeah, are. Yeah, I haven't seen the latter two yet. Shit. You know, now that he's got rid of that, uh, that weird skeletal monster known as Madonna, I have enough faith in him. I think I might check those out. What was that film that they did together that's supposed to be an absolute dog? Is it called... Uh, I, I want to say Castaway, but that's the one with uh, Tom Hanks in it. It's something like that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's named something like that, and it's supposed to be an absolute dog. <laughs> oh, God, I know what you're talking about. Is it about. also about the Kabbalah, like Madonna's children's books? <laughs> it, was, oh. it was worse than um, shit, the Ben Affleck and uh, Jennifer Aniston movie. <laughs> chocolate. I'm not saying it like a fag. It's chocolate. Oh, swept away. That's swept it. away is uh, yeah. yeah. I, I I have never even heard of this. It also takes place on an island. It also has away in the title. That's pretty funny. <laughs> it's a it's a rom com. Okay, and it stars Madonna. That's pretty funny. Has she ever done a well, rom com before? I mean, have then? you ever seen a Madonna film that's not a dog? I mean, they've all been absolute garbage, haven't they? I'm proud to say I've never seen a Madonna film. <laughs> you seen not uh, seen Dick Tracy? Oh yeah, I guess I did see that like once on TV, sort of. The first two movies that I can remember seeing, I was it was 1989. I was like five or six at the time, and it was a double feature at the drive-in. It was Dick Tracy and the first Batman movie. Oh, nice. Al Pacino was... Um, oh, I can't remember which character he was. Al Pacino was in it, wasn't he? Scarface. Shit. I'm, I might have to rewatch Dick Tracy tonight. <laughs> no, no. I've already started downloading John Wick 2. I'm going to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this conversation has been very eye-opening for me in that I really felt like a lot of movies just weren't for me anymore, that I had to kind of compromise on everything that I watched, but there's still stuff out there to enjoy. I, it's few and far between, but there's still stuff out there to enjoy. So although I'm not an advocate for bread and circuses, those days are gone and gone forever, more than likely. There's still pockets pockets of really cool, creative, and innovative filmmaking that just about anyone can enjoy, even if they're a problematic, cis-gendered white male. I really want to thank Hemingford for coming on the show. Uh, you're kind of obligated to, but but thanks anyway, dude. <laughs> no props, mate. And Roscoe, you're not at all obligated to come on, but I hope you join us again. This was a really good time. Thanks a lot. I had had an absolute blast joining you guys. Well, that's great to hear. And everyone, check out ExodusAmericanus.com, some of the finest radio programs you'll see on the internet. And uh, I want to thank all of our listeners yet again for joining us. We love you. And until next time, stay dope. Keep